Hello and welcome to a new SIS Masters podcast. Today I have the pleasure to welcome Robert Chapman and we will speak about high performance, human performance. Robert is the Chief of Sports Science and Medicine Officer at USA Track and Field Federation. Robert is a high-level coach, sports scientist, and he is now managing programs helping top U.S. athletes getting medals. Impressive to think that USA Track and Field represents 26 medals in last Tokyo Summer Olympics. If it were a nation, it would be ranked 12th in the world, 12. In this interview, you will understand the whys of such a successful program and what matters to Robert in his task to helping athletes get greatness and gold. Hey, Robert, how are you today? I'm doing great, Arno. How are you? I'm fantastic. What a nice day. Opening day for the Major League Baseball, and I see you have a nice Dodgers jersey. I do. Uh, it's one of my favorite days of the year. I'm a big Dodger fan, so I, I broke out my jersey for today. Nice, nice. So Braves will be a nice competitor this year. We'll we'll see. You never know. The the great thing about opening day is uh, there's always a lot of promise, right? <laughs> That's right. I'm glad to be with you today we, uh, and get the chance and opportunity to discuss what your favorite topic is, improving human and athletes' performance. That's quite a nice and noble topic. You currently hold the position of Chief Sports science and medicine for the USA Track and Field Federation. For people to know, athletics for USA, it's more than 800 medals in 26 Summer Olympics. So that's huge. In the last Tokyo Olympics, athletics was the second largest medal provider for the USA, uh, right behind swimming. Uh, Track and field got 26 medals out of the 113 from the USA. So if USA Track and Field was a country, it would be, if I'm not mistaken, number 12 on the medal count. <laughs> That's uh, That sounds about right. <laughs> Which and, is and quite impressive. But it, still, it, there's room for improvement. That's why you were there. So of course. W- what are your thoughts on you know these massive and impressive numbers when it comes to track and field? Well, you know, certainly part of it is it's just the logistic of our sport itself. You know, we have basically 42 events where you can win medals. So on one hand, it's a lot of opportunities uh, to win medals. And those opportunities with the resources, the talents that we have in this country, we're we're able to produce. The flip side is, is that it also honestly creates some pressure on us. And the U.S. Olympic Committee and everybody around the country in the United States who's fan of Olympic sports and of track and field in particular, they they expect production. They expect us to win. And so it's a, you know, it's a be careful what you wish for thing in, in that way, right? Is that we have all these great opportunities to win medals. We typically come through and we come through well. Uh, but there's you you can't ever take your foot off the gas. You always have to be thinking about what's the competition doing? Who's coming after the medals we have? What are the low-hanging fruit out there where we can pick up medals in places where we haven't been able to to win medals in past games? So these are always things constantly spinning. And as soon as the one day, one Olympic ends, okay, what are you doing for the next Olympics four years from now? So you got to always be on. So the Next one's Paris 24, uh, which seems amazing if you look at all the plans and legacy program from Paris 24. But for track and field, uh, you have 26 medals. Aiming, what are you aiming at for the next games? Yeah, it's it's not something where we ever like to put out a, a target number because you know we'd like to think the, that you know with the good games, we, why limit ourselves? Uh, at, I can tell you on average, over the last uh, 10 Olympics and world championships, we've averaged right at 27 medals uh, at Olympics and world championships. Uh, At the last world championships in Eugene, we had 33 medals. Now there was some, you know, it was at home in the United States. And so there's always a a home advantage uh, that goes along with that. Uh, But we certainly would like to do better than what we did in Tokyo. You know, 30 is always a good round number that, you know, always kind of sounds nice. You know, we had 32 medals in in Rio in 2016. And so that's, it's not an unreasonable target, but it's not like it's a hard target for us. It always depends on 
what the rest of the world's doing and what our athletes are doing. Yeah, uh, competitors factor. And I mean, to also say achievements are clearly not due to luck or miracles, uh, but the result of a system uh, and, you know, years of experience on building athletes, uh, not only talented, but who perform very well. And in that context, you've got quite a unique uh, professional journey. You, know? you, you can speak the language of, of, of a coach. You've been a coach yourself. You've done a PhD in human performance and exercise physio physiology. Uh, so you understand both the sports science and the coaching side. So as a chief of sports science and medicine, uh, what is the job to be done for you? How does your profile help in the task you have to achieve? That's a, it's a great question. And I think as a chief of sport performance, my job is as, a, a, you know, as a chief of sports science, sports medicine in the high performance department at USA yeah. track and field. My job is to, my job centers on medal attainment. What programs can we implement that can help our athletes and coaches win more medals at Olympic games and world championships? That's a primary outcome. Certainly athletes health and safety. Uh, is mixed in there as well. And, and those two things certainly go hand in hand, but metal production from a competitive standpoint is the number one goal. Now, as a sport administrator, how do you do that? I'd like to think one of the advantages I have is, as you said, I was a, a coach for a number of years. I was the head coach at Indiana University for nine years. I've coached multiple athletes who have made world championships and Olympic games uh, for the USA and other countries. Uh, and then also with my research background, I'm a professor at Indiana University. I have a fully functioning lab where we're doing studies with, I have over 80 publications that we've tried to look at elite athlete performance and, and what limits that performance. So how do you put all those things together to really determine with the limited resources that we do have, What are the things that we can do to help our coaches and athletes succeed? And ultimately, as a sport administrator, that becomes a big job. And one of the things that I've found that, that we can do is quite simply try to work to eliminate barriers for our athletes and our coaches. And this is something that I think is unique to perhaps the USA more than other countries in the sport of track and field is that we, we are not a team. We are not Team USA from the standpoint of we don't all live in one location. We don't all train in one location under a set of coaches with a medical team and a sports science team right there to deliver services. We are spread out all throughout the country. Athletes make their own decisions about who their coaches are, where they live, what meets they go to. And so my job becomes, okay, how do I eliminate the barriers for those athletes and their coaches to get what they need? How can I find and deliver sports medicine in that unique environment to keep them healthy? Because in many cases, we have enough talent in this country. If we can just keep them healthy, we're going to do pretty well. Uh, beyond that, how can we deliver really unique sports science opportunities that get down to the fundamentals of what those athletes really need? But how do we do it in this model where everybody lives in different places? And so we've had to be very creative in that sense. And how can we use, you know, the power of remote video capture and using the cloud, analyzing data, using Zoom and different technologies uh, to communicate with coaches and, and things like that. So that becomes a real administrator challenge. So get medals through eliminating barriers for coaches and athletes, athletes and coaches that are spread out all over the country. Um, I think it's interesting for audience to understand the context of the USA track and field, because sure. the system is quite different from any other country, as you mentioned, where you have a team with a, in most countries, a unique venue where they all train together into different disciplines. So what is the path of an athlete from high school to NCAA to understand how it goes? Uh, Yeah, and see then how you can support. But what is the path of the athletes? Where, where do they come from? Where do they build their performance? Yeah, most of the athletes who end up eventually making our Olympic and World Championships team and, and compete for medals, the vast majority of them, about 95% of them, go through the U.S. collegiate system, the NCAA system, 
uh, and spend, you know, three, four, five years after high school in that system. We do have a few who do go uh, and turn professional right out of high school and, and work with private coaches in that sense. But the majority of them, vast majority, do go to college. And our NCAA system is absolutely fantastic, both in terms of the talent of the coaches, the facilities that are available, the financial resources that those colleges put into supporting uh, those athletes. It is absolutely fundamental to what we've been able to do. I, The analogy or the story I tell is that I have uh, sports scientists from other countries who I'll be at a conference or whatever, and they'll ask me, so what does the U- what does USA Track and Field do in terms of talent identification? And my answer is, we pretty much don't do anything. And they shake their head at me and they go, how, how can that be? You have to do some things for talent ID. And I say for us, it's, it's less about talent identification, but more about talent protection. And they say, well, I don't get it. What do you mean? And it's like, well, you have to understand that at, from 18 years old to 22 or 23 years old, the majority of our top talent is in college with great financial support, full-time coaching, their, their tuition, their meals, their housing. It's all paid for. Their travel to meets, it's all paid for. It's great competition. And we have uh, about 20 athletes, give or take, a year that graduate that have already achieved the World Athletics Qualifying Standard mark, which is absolutely incredible. Um, and so it's, what do we do with those new professionals to keep them in the sport? We, we did an analysis uh, several years ago, but almost 10 years ago now. And we looked at those really high achieving new professionals. And we looked at where they were one, two, three, four years after graduation. And about 80% of them two years later uh, were not at a high enough level where they would re- receive support for USA, from USA Track and Field. They weren't necessarily washed out of the sport, but they hadn't continued to grow enough to where with our limited resources, we could fund them. And so we really need to protect and, uh, and th- that talent and continue to develop them. We don't need to identify them. The, the college program does that for us. We need to continue to develop and protect that talent to get them to that just one more step up where they can now medal at a world championships or Olympics. So you mentioned talent detection. NCAA is doing fantastic the job of, you know, recruiting, developing up to a world level, not the medal, but world level in some cases, 22, 23 years old. But what's a, what is the peak age of average? I know, I suppose it's different depending on, on the disciplines, but what yeah. is the peak age? And depending on the peak age, how do you keep them in the sport? Because financially, you need to be able to live out of it if you want to be a, a medalist. Uh, so how do you keep them yeah. in the loop? That's a really good question. So you're correct. It does depend on the event area. It tends to go maybe a little younger in the sprints, and that would be maybe around 27, 28 is typically, you know, around the average. Certainly there are exceptions and people go longer. Uh, Field events tends to skew a little later, particularly in the throws, uh, particularly in maybe the pole vault. You'll see athletes where they'll peak in their maybe uh, right at 30 or early 30s, uh, perhaps. Distance can be, you know, it's interesting. Distance, you'll have these young phenoms that then kind of maybe flame out a little bit. And then you have others who really shine in their late 20s. Um, you are right. How do we find a way to support them to that later age? And, you know, again, it's this, it's this, uh, this situation where we have so much talent in this country, we see incredible turnover year after year after year. So to give you an example, um, we have some objective markers that we use to identify a group of athletes that we want to look to support in a given year, we call it our tier system. And there are about 160-ish, give or take, athletes who qualify in that, and they receive benefits from us, whether it's financial support, medical support, travel assistance, all the health insurance, all those things. Roughly about 30% of those athletes turn over every year because those graduating college athletes have so much talent and ability they're coming up and it's, it's hard. It's really hard to stay in the system. Here, here's another stat for you. Uh, you look at our 
Olympic or world championships team, it's about 135 athletes, give or take, who make our Olympic or world championships team. The next year, the very next year, about half of those athletes are going to turn over. Literally from year to year, about half of our athletes on a world or Olympics team are going to be brand new. That's how deep the talent is in this country. So for us, it becomes, how do we keep them in the sport longer? How do we keep those athletes who have a lot of talent early on in the sport longer? Yes, some of it is financial. They, they do need that support. Thankfully for us, the, the shoe company sponsorships uh, help out a tremendous amount in that space. What we found is a lot more effective for us, perhaps even more so than, than finances, is just helping to give them the skill sets they need to make that transition into the pro lifestyle. Uh, in the colleges, a lot of things are taken care of for them. You know, you've got coaches and, and staff who make their travel schedule for them. Yes, in pros, you have agents who do some of that stuff. But for a lot of college athletes, they just simply don't know uh, basically how to be an effective professional once they go pro. And they need to kind of be taught and to help that skill develop. And so we've, we've tried to really focus on programs uh, designed to do that. We kind of have this rookie program that we've actually called the Talent Protection Program. That when athletes graduate from college in their first year pros, it's a two-year program where we we bring them into the Olympic Training Center. We have like a three-day seminar, and it's like, here's the key things you need to know to make this transition into a successful professional life with a long, a long career. And then we try to give them resources to back it up. We try to make sure they know, here's your medical provider who's going to check in with you every week. Here's a sports psychology. Here's a nutrition. Here's the mental health. Here's the sleep physiology. Here's all these resources available to you that you might not have thought about as a college kid. But now as a pro, you better dive into these things because if not, you know what? Guess what's going to happen next year? The new college kid's going to come out and he wants your job. Hmm. He's going to come after it. And he's just as good as you are. Yeah. And, and those athletes are, are pros 100% or they, they need side jobs? Uh, I would say the majority of them, the vast majority who are good enough to make that level, uh, do have enough income either from their uh, shoe company contract or what USATF gives them or the prize money that they will earn and other things like that uh, to get by. Are there a few that probably need to subsidize what they make uh, with jobs? Perhaps. And, you know, we do have a few people who it's usually athletes in the field events who maybe aren't as attractive to shoe company sponsors as sprint or distance athletes are. And they may take a job as a substitute teacher a few days a week or, you know, help out, you know, run in the front desk at a place for a couple hours a, a day or something like that. So, okay. So you mentioned you, uh, USA Track and Field is helping around 160. You look at the Olympic, uh, I mean, 160 athletes, it's a lot and it's not a lot when you have around 40 uh, events. Uh, so it's not that much. So it's, you need to be at the top. How do you help them develop their programs to be at the top? What are the key factors that the athletes should consider, consider to to make a good program and reach a standards that you need to support them? Wow, that's a really good question. So I think some of it very early on in their professional career just comes down to effective decision-making. So for example, when they go pro, uh, some of them will stay with their college coach. Some will go to a new coach. And oftentimes that very first decision of who's your coach and who's your agent can have an incredible effect uh, later on in your career, we have coaches in this country who are absolutely fantastic. They are, they are metal producing coaches. And if you go to them, you give yourself the best chance. If you go be coached by your, you know, your uncle Steve, <laughs> which we see happen, uh, you know, the chances go down quite a bit. Uh, certainly that's one. Uh, the next one is to realize that, um, you have to take care of your body. And I think the number one factor, if you if if we could look at what influences performance, and you said, here's the variation in performance, and I'm speaking as a scientist now, of, of athlete performance. 
certainly probably the number one factor in athlete performance is their individual talent. The second most important factor is probably the ability of their coach to develop them. Okay. And, and that's, I think, fairly universal across many sports. But if you go to the next one, probably the next key one is, can you stay healthy and train effectively every day? And there's actual data from it, not only from, from what we do, but, you know, Australian Institute of Sport, many other places have shown that what they call missed training days is a huge factor, particularly in the sport of track and field, if you're going to reach your goals. So we have to keep athletes healthy. And then it's providing them, one, resources to try to accomplish that. But number two, changing their mindset around they have to make an investment every day in their own physical and mental health. And it takes effort. You can't just, you know, when you're an 18-year-old kid, you don't think about those things, right? But when you're a 23-year-old professional who's training at the level that we have to train at, it better be front and center in your mind. You better be ready to invest time and effort into it and honestly invest a little bit of money into it in terms of, you know, don't be afraid to pay for weekly massages. Don't be afraid that if your knee's bothering you, well, let's order an MRI and don't freak out if the, you know, the deductible or copay is 50 bucks. It's it's a bargain at three times the price to get the MRI to really know what's going on with your knee. So don't put that off. You know, it's things like that, changing that mindset. Th- those are probably the key things that we try to do. <laughs> But when it comes to to the programs to support and mindsets, you were mentioning that everywhere around the country, in a previous conversation together, I think there were around 60 locations. So yeah. that, that means there's no one side fits all. They're all unique cases, different events, different origins, different contexts, uh, including financial and social contexts. Yeah. So how do you how do you manage to build some things that can help each and every uh, of these athletes? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of them, I'll talk to you about the medical space. So what we've done is we've looked at those all those 160 tier athletes who may live in a you know 50 or 60 different places around the country. We do have pockets where we have a higher, a fairly high concentration of those athletes. So. To give you an example, uh, the Orlando, Florida area has a lot of athletes. The Dallas and, and Austin, Texas area has a lot. Southern California, Los Angeles is always going to have a lot. And so what we've done is we've actually hired uh, what we call regional medical providers, and I've parked them in that location so that they can go, you know, my provider in Orlando, Florida, her name's Jerica Thomas. She does a great job. She'll go one day a week to uh, Dennis Mitchell's track, who's an elite coach with an elite sprint group there. Then on Tuesday, the next day, she might go to Lance Brahman's track where Noah Lyles trains. Then on Wednesday, she might drive 60 miles up the road to Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. And we have a group of about eight or nine uh, elite athletes who train there. And it's not just to provide hands-on care, but she now becomes the team leader in the medical space for that athlete. So it's not just I'm seeing you every day, I'm putting hands on you, I'm helping you get better, but we're talking overall about your entire medical, mental health, nutrition, everything. I'm your I'm your personal concierge provider for that to either give it to you directly or I go and, you know, that provider finds the resources and brings it in to help those athletes. Uh, so every single one of our elite athletes is assigned one of these medical providers. Maybe they live in their community and they see them once a week, or maybe it's somebody who lives in South Dakota where we don't have anybody who lives there, but they're assigned a provider who is going to have a zoom call with them once a week and is going to check in. And if they need something, we figure it out. And if they're a good enough athlete and they have problems, I get that person on an airplane and fly them out to South Dakota to go work on them. And so that's one way. Uh, The other way is we've, again, taken advantage of, and this is kind of the combination of technology growing and the lessons that we've all learned in the pandemic about what we're doing right now, having a conversation virtually uh, in this space, is instead of me having to have, let's say, a, a sprint biomechanics provider go to your track every so often that is expensive to fly you. It's time consuming. I can't do it as much as I want uh, to give you biomechanical analysis. Maybe what we could do is 
what we've done. And we've come up with a, a remote uh, sports science biomechanics service model where we've provided uh, video equipment to our elite sprint groups. We've kind of given a little stipend to one of their assistant coaches or their managers to once a week, they're going to go set up a camera in a very particular calibrated way. They're going to capture video. They're going to upload it to the cloud. And then our sports scientists are immediately going to analyze that on the back end. And then we're going to put the analysis and the data into a very nice, uh, visually appealing dashboard where the coach can not only see the data and the video and our analysis from that particular session, but they also have a catalog of that athlete for every session they've done every week, you know, since the beginning of the year. So now they can look at trends over time and they can look at, uh, we've got some machine learning models and algorithms built in to kind of point out that might say, hey, for Noah Lyles, if you could improve his stride rate, that seems to be the limiting factor of what our analysis says is that might be it. And if you can improve it by, you know, uh, a half a step a second, then you can get this sort of change in velocity. And it may be that for Noah Lyles, but it may be that for uh, Shakari Richardson, she needs uh, a shorter ground contact time. And if she can make that adjustment, that's the biggest player. Uh, and the other advantage of it is it allows us to do it more frequently because I don't have to send a provider to you. Now you're getting the data. You can feed it to me once a week, twice a week if you want, rather than me only being able to afford and logistically able to send that provider to you once every two months. Uh, so it makes us a lot more effective now uh, in being able to deliver those services. And, and it fits the remote nature of where our athletes live all over the country. So we, we've adapted. So that leads me, I mean, technology is an enabler of doing a lot more with the athletes, remote and not remote, but um, remote, obviously. Um, yeah. That leads me to the question about what sports performance areas do you decide to invest in? Uh, because there's so much options. Right. Uh, uh, so much option in that space that it, um, it cannot be a guess, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I mean, decision-making has to be very, I suppose, very rational uh, because it's limited resources as well and because athletes have their, have their coaches, their own staff. So what is the decision-making process when it comes to what sports performance areas to develop? Sure, it's a great question. So where we usually start, is we'll go back to the very beginning and we're, again, our goal is metal attainment. And so we'll do at, at its simplest level, we'll say, where have we generated the most metals recently? Where is our current biggest pool of metal potential talent in what areas? But then we'll look at the rest of the world and we'll say, what is kind of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of metal attainment? possibilities where maybe if we could just up our game a little bit with some investment, we might be able to win more medals. So to give you an example, you know, we always are going to win uh, hopefully quite a few medals in the sprint and hurdle events. We have a lot of talent in this country. We're very good. And that's usually our, our event area where we generate the most medals. Uh, but at the same time, I'm going to give you an example. In 2012, we went back and looked and uh, the throwing events we thought might be one of those low hanging fruit events at the 2012 Olympics. If I'm not mistaken, we got one medal, uh, in the men's shot put in all of the eight throwing events total between men and women. We just felt like that was low hanging fruit that we could get more metal production with a little bit of investment. So we did kind of a deep dive, brought in a bunch of coaching and science experts and say, how can we solve these problems in the throws events? And without getting into the details, we came up with a plan. We invested resources in it. We delivered those to the athletes and coaches. And we've seen incremental growth. By the time we got to uh, 2016, we went from one to three medals. So one Olympics later. Uh, and then at this past world championships in 2022, we ended up with eight medals uh, mm -hmm. in the throws. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of both. How do we protect, how do we invest and protect the events we're already very good at? And how do we invest in the events that we're not as good at, but maybe our lowest hanging fruit on the world scene? So we start with that. Then we have to go back and say, all right, 
what's the mo- what factors are going to be the biggest influencers on performance? How can we deliver those logistically to the athletes and coaches? And what's the financial cost? And so all these things kind of go into the calculus of us trying to determine which programmatic things we can do uh, to help support athletes. A a similar example is uh, in 2012, we had won two medals in the distance events at the Olympic Games. And we really felt like a, a reason why we hadn't been doing as well is because our athletes had not fully embraced altitude training in the distance events that we knew really was the key performance enhancer in many ways over and above what they do in their training. So we kind of developed an ambitious program to try to individually screen the essentially blood response to altitude in our best endurance athletes. And so I was on a lot of airplanes to Flagstaff, Arizona, and to Park City, Utah, to essentially measure blood markers in our athletes at the beginning and end of altitude camps. And we actually could dial it in to say, you know, athlete A, you are an incredible responder. You have this huge blood response and talk to the coach. You should really invest in this and, and really dial it in before major championships. And here's how you do it. And it may be that other athletes, athlete B, you're you're just a poor responder. And athlete, altitude training, it, it's emotionally taxing because it takes you away from your home, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your spouse and, and other things. And it's expensive. So instead of doing that, minimize your stress, stay at home. You're going to get more response doing it that way. Uh, and similarly, we went from two medals in London to seven medals in, in Rio in the distance events. And it, I'm not saying it's all due to what we did. Of course not. It's due to the talent of the athletes and the talent of the coaches. But if we could eliminate those barriers and just give a little more information to, to optimize and get that extra half a percent, you know, oftentimes that's that's the tipping point in our sport. So this is interesting. So that shows how personalized it is depending on the events and the athletes. So does it mean that you have a common ground of support like biomechanic, nutrition, psychology? And then depending on events and athletes, you add some different layers of, of techniques that can help them? That's absolutely it. You know, as a sport administrator, we've got to deliver to the population as a whole, and we need to try to do it in a, in a manner that is cost effective. And oftentimes that means having just programmatic efforts that, that reach everyone. But at the same time, we know not every event is the same. We know not every athlete's the same. We know that the needs are different within groups and the needs are different within athletes. And, you know, even though we have 160 athletes, uh, there are some we know, you know, and this is where, you know, kind of data analytics comes into play. Uh, you know, for example, we have a, a discus thrower named Valerie Allman. She won the, the gold medal in uh, the discus in Tokyo. She's incredibly talented and her coach has done a fantastic job with her. We basically, athletes like her and Ryan Krauser in the men's shot put, who's a world record holder, we need to keep them healthy. We need to get them to the to the event on the start line, ready to go. And as long as they don't fall down, they're probably going to do pretty well, right? So literally, if there's anything they need, we need to individualize that resource to them and prioritize it as number one. Uh, the, the joke I say is that if Ryan Krauser gets a splinter in his finger, uh, I have two people, I have two doctors I can put on an airplane tomorrow with tweezers to go take it out. Hmm. That's how important he is uh, to what we do individually, but then programmatically, we've you know a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So we need to have good, solid, fundamental programmatic efforts across the board that help make everybody better. Hmm. That's that sounds quite complex, and <laughs> it is. That, that leads me to two different questions. One is how do you mix? Because everything you do is a lot of data analytics, a lot of new technologies in different spaces uh, so quite experimental I would assume in some cases uh, because you you're here to bring a cutting edge uh, so it's these little details that the competitors don't have so how um, how to phrase it well um, 
how do you mix the short-term results to the long-term when you decide about investing on you know, providers and technologies, resources that you have? How do you mix the short-term needs and the long-term needs? Because if you think two short-terms, you might uh, pass some things that will be a game-changer in the future, or I'm mistaken. No, it, it, it's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the challenges of, of our sport is oftentimes we'll go into the office on Monday and it'll be, okay, what track meet do we have this weekend <laughs> that we need to get ready for? So it's always a series of short-term things, but you always do have to continually think long-term, even, you know, across quads, across four-year cycles uh, of an Olympic Games. Um you know, here's what I'll say about our sport is that in many ways, our sport is perhaps arguably the most basic in that, you know, we run, we jump, we throw, right? We we don't have an offense or a defense. We don't have a ball, <laughs> uh, you know, strategy, game strategy oftentimes is not part of it, right? It comes down to the fundamental building blocks of physiology, motor skill, biomechanics, mental performance, uh, things like that. And in many cases, those fundamentals probably aren't going to change. And so when you think long-term, it's how do we make sure that we continue to support those fundamental areas in the way they need to support? But then it's what's the new cutting-edge things that we can do. Uh, an example I'll give you is, um, you know, technology is changing all the time. You know that. And you probably talk to many people on your podcast in, mm -hmm. in that space who are really doing some amazing things. And one of the challenges we face is that um, when you think about technology development for sport, track and field is usually not the first one that pops up in, you know, a venture capitalist mind when he's thinking about a new technology investment. They're thinking basketball, baseball, football, soccer, something like that. And so a lot of times we have to steal and borrow from others. Uh, you know, one of the things we're looking at now is there's some really neat technologies in baseball that are looking at uh, aspects of the pitching motion and being able to, for example, put arm sleeves on the pitcher that'll measure torque, that'll measure velocity, that'll measure range of motion. Can we adapt that for the javelin? It's not the same throwing motion, but at least it's in the same family, you know, so can we adapt those technologies we always know that biomechanics uh, applied to the javelin are going to be important, but now how can we integrate these new cutting edge things and these new tools? Uh, we, we have to look at that. And then we have to change athlete mindset about wearables. Uh, if you know anything about pro athletes, they oftentimes hate having to strap something on. They just think it's going to mess with them. And we've got to continually show them that there's value in the data that outweighs the minimal discomfort of having to wear the device. And that's always something that we're we're looked at and, and challenged with. Yeah, if you speak about soccer, the GPS system in the back of the jersey, some yep. years ago that was impossible. Now everyone has. I mean, they understood the benefits. They do. Uh, so how do you benchmark or research what are those new technologies? Because the field, there are so many sports that because you were mentioning, you look at other sports. Uh, because that's where potentially there's more money to develop technologies and improve performance. Yep. Um, how do you, how do you plan this process of of learning, eventually testing to see where to? Okay, let's focus on this. Uh, you know, I you, you say planning, and that uh, it gives an impression it's part of a, a grand master plan, and <laughs> and and oftentimes, uh, you know, it's this is the world we live in is I'll get a, you know, I'm, I subscribe to like many of us different, you know, email updates. Uh, there's one called sport techie that yeah, yeah. sport business journal has that, that I get every day. And every once in a while, something will just catch your eye. And oftentimes what I'll do is I'll get this email and I'll shoot it to my, uh, my assistant, Tyler Noble, who's our senior manager of sports science and data analytics. And it's like, Hey, Tyler, check out article number three and, and do a look at them. And if you think there's something there, set up a call. And, and oftentimes that's the Genesis to be honest of how these things get started. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, well, it's, 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 lever it's leveraging the marketplace in that way. It's, 
you know, sometimes there are ideas that we come up with that maybe are original, maybe are new, and that are game changers. And oftentimes it's just some little spark of innovation that somebody else has that now comes to you and you can see a new way to apply it. Well, sometimes it's reactive because you see something happening and you want to learn and see. And sometimes it's proactive, meaning, oh, you identify your space and, and you go f- and you look for how. I would agree with that for for sure. And again, it's it's even more challenging to us because we're not soccer, we're not basketball. We're fundamentally, even though you have some differences between, you know, let's say the goalkeeper and other players, everybody's still doing the same basic things. But we have sprinters, distance runners, even with the within the jumps, we have you know, four different disciplines that are all completely different. (laughs) So, you know, how do you really drill down to find, you know, a unique resource specific to that one? It it becomes a real challenge. It is, it is. What do you think would be more, more broadly, what do you think would be the game changers to keep improving sports performance? Because we keep seeing records and records, which is fantastic for the fans, fantastic for the athletes, great motivation, financial resources. What do you think will be the, the sciences that will be driving uh, performance growth? I think it's a couple of things. So, you know, obviously with the wearables and the video technology and the bandwidth we have in that space, we are able to get more and more data on more and more athletes. I think the real challenge becomes is, so all those things are focused on data acquisition. How can we get measures on athletes that may be of use? Where the real challenge becomes is in the data processing and analysis side. It's on the back end. It's how can you take that information that you get from an athlete's practice day after day after day, synthesize it, look and see what really matters for that specific individual or for athletes in general, and then be able to go back to the coach and translate it and say, here's what we found. Based on that, here's the intervention that you need to do to change it. Right now, that is the black hole, in my mm-hmm. opinion, is we're getting better and better at how do, we, how do we acquire data on athletes. Great. But now, how do you take it, analyze it, determine what really limits performance, translate it for the coach, and then come up with the exact specific intervention to, to have an effect? Once you solve that, that's how you're really going to move things forward. Hmm. So the potential, the capacity to analyze and recommend actions uh, to the coaches in a in a way they understand it and they embrace it. Yeah, and and to not only be able to just recognize it and present it to the coach in the way they understand, but to help the coach m- make the decision of how they're going to alter the training load or how they're going to alter the technical biomechanical teaching or how they're going to alter a drill to develop the motor pattern that your data says needs to be developed. What's the right choice to make there? Um, those things all have to be, and, and maybe that's the art of coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's where the science and the art blend together is, is being able to do that. But that's the space that, to be quite honest, that a lot of sports, they don't have the bandwidth in, in personnel. You know, right now, a lot of money and personnel is being done in, okay, measure these factors and tell us what matters. But then the decision-making intervention side on the back end doesn't get as much play and doesn't get as much support. And those decision sciences are just as important as the the data acquisition and analysis on, on, the, on the front end. Hmm. Well, that would require a series of trainings and hmm, interesting. I do think it'll be the natural evolution because you, I don't think you can see the investment that all these tech companies are making in these devices, in these two techniques to get the data. Eventually, people are going to, and they probably, and, and this isn't novel. They've already realized, gosh, we have all these data. How do we, how do we make it effective? I mean, look at. I'll give you an example at the in the university space uh, at the NCA level in, in the United States is all these universities are investing heavily into sport performance resources. And the first thing they do is, okay, what's the new shiny tool that I can buy that can give me 
information uh, on our team. And and my university, Indiana University, where where I work, is also doing that. And you'll have the soccer team, the basketball team, everybody will they'll wear their catapults and wear them in practice and get all this data. But the problem is right now, the challenge that those universities and departments have is what do they do in that space to say what the data mean, translate it to the coach so they can make it more effective. That's, that's the challenge. It's funny because in the business space, many people say that the chief data analyst is going to become more important as a chief marketing officer. In some ways, you could believe that yeah. is a chief data scientist uh, or whatever the name is for this kind of position will have a major role in, uh, in the future, not undermining the role of a coach. Uh, but, of course. Uh, but it's going to be, that's where the balance is going to be changing in some ways. I think that's an important point. And, and I also want to reinforce that you know, again, it's the athlete's talent and the coach's talent and experience that really drives the bus. You, you can't replace those. And we're not saying these technological advances are going to do that. It's just how can we provide the coach with even more information and the athlete with more information that's the right information to help them make better decisions about the workloads that they apply and the decisions they make in game or whatever it may be. Hmm. Hmm. In your journey in that position, you've been a coach, we've mentioned, you're a scientist, you've done, you do research, you've done and you keep doing research um, on the sports science and medicine part. Now you're an administrator for USA Track and Field. What has been the most challenging? What do you like the most? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, on the challenges, um, you know, with any organization and within any sport, there's always politics. And managing those politics can always be a challenge. So certainly that's one. Uh, another challenge is um, simply, I'm going to say my own sense of guilt about not being able to do more for athletes and coaches than what we're mm -hmm. doing. Is there's so, these athletes, there's so much promise in what we do. And athletes' careers are so short that and and they have so many needs that i wish i could do as much as i could for every athlete but the reality is we're not the los angeles lakers we're not the los angeles dodgers we're not the los angeles rams I, i'm picking my favorite la teams here but um we're not these professional sports that have 12 or 30 or 56 athletes in one location that come to one place to train we're spread out all over the country so we have to do what we can and there, there's a guilt uh, that I often leave it at the end of every day that, gosh, I wish I could have done more. Uh, on the other side, what do I enjoy is what's brain candy for me ever since I was a little kid is how do you solve the puzzle? Right. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, it was, how do you train an athlete to break four minutes in a mile? Uh, how do you coach an athlete to an Olympic team? How do you coach an athlete to win an Olympic medal? How do you solve that puzzle? Uh, now in, in the, in the research, it's always, how do you answer the question, right? You know, what would this, what's the right intervention to do for an athlete going to altitude? How long should they stay? What altitude should they live at? How should they train? What sort of supplements should they take? It's, it's, it's brain candy answering those questions. Uh, as a sport administrator, how can we win more medals? You know, how can we solve that puzzle? It is an incredible challenge every day. And, there's not a single day that I go into my office where it's not fun to think about solving that puzzle. It's, it's really great. And, and the neat thing is when you do, uh, I remember being on the airplane, uh, flying home from Rio, we won 32 medals and just the satisfaction, uh, that, that you feel from knowing you did that was great. Uh, and, and, but it's short lived because then you land and everybody's like, Hey, you won 32 miles this year. How many are you going to win in Tokyo in the next games? And it's like, oh gosh, okay, let's think about the next four-year high-performance plan and start writing that tomorrow. No, no, no time to enjoy victory. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Super interesting. Um, if you had to add one skill to the many you have, what do you think 
what would it be? Uh, wow. You know, so there's, everybody has their own weaknesses that they want to address. I certainly, you know, as an administrator have leadership skills and other things I'd like to address, but I'll, I'll tell you what, the one skill that I think that would really help me in my role. Uh, and, and to be honest, you know, if I'm falling asleep at night and I'm reading articles or watching a YouTube video lately, it's all about, uh, I'm going to say, uh, data analytics, machine learning tools, and things like that, that can help us really look at the data we do have in a new way in terms of what limits performance. There, there's so many tools that are out there, in, uh, particularly in the machine learning space when it comes to data. And, and of course, we, we have those tools um, available to us in our lab, and, and I use it all the time. But, you know, if I really take me out of the lab as a physiologist and the things I can measure on people. But if I can start looking more at the big data uh, that we do have and some of those skills, I really think those are going to be game changers in terms of influencing some of the decisions we make as sport administrators on, okay, you've got, you've got 160 athletes, you have 200 or 250 athletes, which are the right ones to pick? You know, what do the data say? You know, we've got the eyeball test, right? We can look at an athlete, run, jump, or throw, and we can think, ah, I think he's going to be pretty good or she's going to be pretty good. But let's really drill down in the data. And what do the data say are going to be, okay, these are the ones who really have the best shot. You know, how can we really grasp those tools and utilize them more? We're, we're making a lot of headway in that space, but I always feel like there's more we can do. Both time saver and an efficiency saver. Okay. It is. And, just, and, and even just making you feel even more confident. It's yeah. hard to argue with data, right? Yeah. You know, we, we spend a lot of time with our athletes, um, you know, for, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, you could imagine other pro sports where you have your preseason camp in football, you can have 56 men on the roster. You have 75 men in camp. At some point, the coach or the GM is going to say, hey, or no, you know, come into my office, bring your playbook with you. We're sorry. We're going to let you go. Um, and in that world, everybody understands that that's how it works in track and field. It's not that way, right? It's well, you know, who are you going to make a decision to support? Well, if I decide to support you, it means I'm not supporting somebody else. That other person goes, wait a minute, I jumped this far and I'm this age and I've done this and I, you know, why, why aren't you supporting me? And it, the more we have data to be able to show either that athlete or everybody as a whole, hey, these are the factors that go into our decision, not just I'm just one guy looking at you making a call. Hmm. I, I think it helps the athlete come to terms with that better. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end, all the decisions that are taken are life changers. They are. For they the are. humans you're dealing with. And it's not a responsibility we take lightly. So the more exactly. data we do have and the more analytics we do have to support it, um, it is important. Hmm. Thank you so much, Rob. Before closing, we have um, a ritual with a series of quick questions for quick answers. I'm sure okay. you like it. All right, fire away. Okay, your favorite all-time athlete and why? Oh, wow. Um, I've always been a baseball fan. I've always been a fan of Los Angeles Dodgers. Like you said at the beginning, I'm, I'm wearing my, my Dodger jersey. Um, I always wanted to be the first baseman for the LA Dodgers growing up. And Steve Garvey was the first baseman. Uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, he'd probably be the first one that just pops into my head, particularly on, on today of all days. Showing the importance of use memories in sport. Yes. Who's your favorite coach? <laughs> my favorite coach was my high school coach. Uh, so when I was a cross country and track athlete in high school, I had two coaches. I had Bruce Momsen and uh, Richard Huggins, and they were both teachers at my school, and they were both incredibly caring. And I just learned a lot about life and what it means to work hard and make sacrifices from them. Your favorite event, sport event? I, you know, I, I work for track and field. And so I'm going to give you a track and field event. I've become a huge fan of the men's shot put and the women's shot put. It's is it just the, the shot put. 
Uh, I, you know, they, to watch these athletes who are as big and as strong as they are be as, it's almost like you have to be a 350 pound ballet dancer <laughs> to be able to do the rotation or do the glide and, and apply the force the way they do. It is, it's absolutely beautiful to watch. So grace in massive um, body. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, everybody looks at it and thinks it's so easy. It is incredibly difficult. It's a lot of balance, isn't it? It's Reason. balance. It's balance. It's motor control. It is biomechanics, but it is when you're in the weight room squatting, <laughs> you know, 350 kilos or something <laughs> like that. It is, it is power and guts. Your favorite stadium. Wow, my uh, I'm gonna say on one hand Dodger Stadium because again I love my Dodgers and and baseball. Uh, for track and field, I'm gonna say um, you know I really enjoy the Olympic Stadium in London. I think it's a neat venue. It's a special place, um, and and it's a really nice place to watch a track meet. Hmm. Your favorite word my favorite word yeah <laughs> you know i've always thought potential is is really a good word because you know what anything can happen at any time for anybody everybody's got potential to do something it's just what you decide to do with it and find people who are lucky enough to find where's that both patient and potential yeah one great advice you have received or learned you would like to share one piece of advice i've learned that i'd like to that i'd like to share um <laughs> you know um one piece of advice this is very specific to track and field is i i was a distance athlete i was a distance coach and as i got more and more into coaching and learned and appreciated more about the other events uh, in the field events, particularly in like the long jump, triple jump and the, and the throwing events, they have a saying and the saying is it only takes one. And the idea is it, you know what, you could be having a really bad day, but it just takes one good throw <laughs> to win, to win the Olympic gold medal. Right. And so oftentimes I'll sit back and say, you know what, we're trying to do all these things for all these athletes, but you know what, at the end of the day for each athlete, it just takes one. It just takes one thing oftentimes to make a difference. I don't have to be all things to all people, but if I can just give them one little thing that can do it, maybe that's, that's one I'll stick with there. Yeah. Nice one. Nice one. If you had one more hour every day, what would you do? Watch more baseball. <laughs> uh, if if my wife ever pays listens to this, I'm going to say pay attention to my wife, <laughs> uh, because when when you do this job for USA Track and Field, I have my faculty job at Indiana University. I'm on the road 120 days a year. Okay. Uh, it it takes a lot of time, so I'm going to stick with that one. Is is pay attention to my wife. Uh, my son's fully grown now, but you know, make sure and give him some love too. Those things are important to have balance. Fair enough, fair enough. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, with your time on earth, you did the best you could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is, I think all of us want to try to be a good person and do the right thing. Uh, we're always going to fall short in, in my job, helping athletes and administering the sport and being a scientist and being a husband and a father. We're all trying to do the best we can, and hopefully uh, God would recognize that and give us credit for that. Mm -hmm. Nice, Rob. Rob, I thank you so much for sharing so nicely and authentically uh, your thoughts on what you do. Um, wish you the best, the best for your endeavors. I shouldn't say that being a French, and I hope we'll get better results in athletics, but... <laughs> But knowing you, I wish you the best uh, in all you do. Uh, I'm sure you bring a lot of values. There's no doubt of that. Uh, you've been highly recommended by our common friend, Finn Kirwan. And so I just can say thank you. And again, all the best. And we'll be, we'll be in touch. We'll be I... in touch and we'll take a look at what you do. 
Sure. I, I appreciate our time together. And I want to say congratulations to you on a great podcast on partway through your, your library. And they've been really informative and fun to listen to. So great job on your part with this. No, thanks to you. And best for the game tonight with the opening game of the Dodgers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.